Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, author, and property investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. Now, I've got a bit of a confession to make to you in this episode. I've been lurking. Specifically, I've been lurking on Facebook. And I remember that my children always used to have a go at me and say, Dad, you're lurking on Facebook. What are you doing? By the way, I ought to clarify, I wasn't actually doing anything, but you know what teenage children like, possibly. Anyway, so there we are. Perhaps we shouldn't go into this. I've been on Facebook and I've been hanging around, I should say, perhaps is a better way of putting it than lurking, hanging around on the progressive Facebook group. And seeing a lot of those great posts that uh, appear there, and it's such a fantastic resource. If you haven't ever got yourselves onto the Facebook group, then do it. Get in touch with the admin. Don't email me because I'm nothing to do with it, but email the admin at Progressive and get yourselves on board because there's just so much great information. I thought it'd be very useful for this podcast to go onto Facebook to see the things that have been said maybe look at some of the questions that have been asked and to give my own particular take on it. So without further ado, Alex Milburn, a call out to you. Alex has posted an incredible post saying, and this is almost hard to believe, but there we go. Over the last seven months, I have acquired 40 rent to rent serviced accommodation units and achieved a million pounds plus turnover without using a penny of my own money. Let me just say that again. Over the last seven months, I have acquired 40 rent-to-rent serviced accommodation units and achieved a million pound plus turnover without using a penny of my own money. And Alex, I think that's an amazing thing to be posting. And by the way, just to put this in context, it's not like Alex was actually posting, bragging about this. It, it, It was a much longer post and I've just taken out one line of it. So you're not getting it in context. But I just want to focus on that because that just says so much really about what we can do and what we can achieve when we know what we're doing. And I suppose there's a few thoughts which occurred to me when I was reading that post. And the first is, I don't know Alex, um, but I'm pretty sure that Alex will have had education in order to get to that point. And that's probably an obvious thing to say. And I know obviously UK Progressive or a training company, blah, blah, blah. Yes, I know that. But it's the reality, isn't it, that quite often people who don't do, don't know how to do. And that's the fundamental problem. But they quite often don't want to invest in themselves in order to find out how to do the doing. And I use the word investment very deliberately because I'm sure that perhaps if we'd gone back a year or so to wherever Alex was in his property journey then, any cost of learning how to do what he's done, I'm sure he would have seen as, as an investment if he'd known that a year later, he was going to be making a million pound turnover from his serviced accommodation business. So that was the first thing that occurred to me, that Alex hasn't done this in a vacuum. He's obviously learned how to do it. And either that's through trainings or it's through mentoring with people who know how to do it and they've showed him how to do it. I'm imagining. Alex, maybe if you want to put a post up when you hear this and tell us, that would be really helpful. Second thing which occurred to me about this is that Alex must have a very particular mindset, and it's a mindset which is geared towards success. How do I know that? Well, because he's been successful. 
But also the clue is in what he's done, because if Alex had posted, over the last seven months I've bought one buy-to-let property, that in itself would have been a fantastic achievement. And I'm not uh, d denigrating that, by the way. That, that would be a wonderful achievement. But actually, you can tell from the way that Alex has posted this that his mindset is actually operating at a different level again. Because to go from virtually nothing, which is the implication of this statement, to having 40 rent-to-rent serviced accommodation units turning over a million plus, I think you need a particular mindset to do that. Now, we could look at this in so many different ways, and probably there's a whole podcast there to be talked about mindset. I mean, in fact, when I very first started doing the podcast a year or so ago, if you go back about 50 episodes, I did do a short podcast about mindset. So maybe refresh your memories with that if you've forgotten what I said. But the key thing, I think, in all success is having the right mindset. And this is one of the things which I stress when I do masterclass. I'm one of the masterclass trainers at Progressive, and I have the honour of introducing masterclass at nine o'clock on the Friday morning when it kicks off. And one of the things which I stress in my introduction is that you can learn all of the technological stuff, you can learn all of the techniques, you can learn how to do property. There's no shortage of actually getting the knowledge, but nothing is going to make any difference at all unless you've got the right mindset, particularly a mindset to take action, which we'll think about in a moment. And I know that mindset is important because for me, it's been one of those things which I'm going to be honest, I've struggled with my mindset over the years. I'm sure that we all struggle with our mindset at points. Even the most successful people, I'm guessing, have probably imposed artificial glass ceilings on themselves as to how far they can go. There's probably very few exceptions to that. One of the exceptions I can think of is probably Donald Trump. Love him or hate him, but he seems to think at a bigger level than anybody on the planet. He thinks the same. I mean, if you sort of combined the thinking of everybody else on the planet and merged it into one, you end up with a Donald Trump, don't you? Because he's just at a higher level again. So I know for myself that mindset is something that is so important. And it's only when I started working on my mindset that I really began to achieve a lot more and began to become what I would consider to be successful. And I know that this is a journey which I'm still on. So mindset is so important. I'm guessing that Alex, maybe you've either you were very lucky and you were born with a particular mindset, or maybe you've spent time working on your mindset. By the way, if you're not sure that your mind is in the right place for success, don't just note it and move on, but resolve to do something about it. There's so many great resources that you can get into. I mean, listen to the podcasts. I mean, obviously, Rob Moore with the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast. Fantastic for your mindset. Read Rob's book about money. Fantastic for your mindset. Go on to YouTube and listen to anything by Tony Robbins, uh, Brian Tracy, Jim Rohn. That's R-O-H-N. I just love Jim Rohn, who was the sort of granddaddy of the personal development movement and who actually taught Tony Robbins. All of that stuff is great stuff. And it'll make, it's made a mass massive difference in my life to open up to me the possibilities of what I could do. Now, just in case you're wondering, by the way, because one of the questions I sometimes get about me is, well, as you've been in property all of your life, you know, why, why would you need to work on your mindset? Hasn't that been an advantage to you, the fact that you're a surveyor? The question is usually phrased in, in one of those two ways. Either, you know, what, why did you need mindset help? Or why didn't, didn't you find being a surveyor an advantage? Or did you find being a surveyor an advantage is perhaps a better way of putting it. 
And the reality is, no, I didn't find being a surveyor actually to be a particular advantage in being a property investor. Why? Well, firstly, because surveyors are actually trained to be quite cautious. And I think that cuts against being an entrepreneur. Also, I came out of a corporate background. My, my surveying, when I was ejected from surveying, was in the West End of London, working for a big, prestigious firm of surveyors, where I was a partner of the firm, having to act like a partner of a firm of prestigious West End surveyors. And it didn't really fit with being an entrepreneur. And I've had to battle against that over the years to try and get myself back into the right frame of mind to be able to be a successful property investor stroke entrepreneur. So recognize where you are and take action. Because action in terms of sorting out your mindset, but then the next stage of taking action is actually undertaking and doing the things that you know you need to do in order to be successful. And this is again something which I stress on day one of Masterclass when I do the introduction, because you can learn how to do the stuff. There's no shortage of information in the world about how to do whatever it is you want to do. But the reality is, if you don't do it, nothing is going to change. And I think that's one of the things that some, hopefully not you, but I think some people don't appreciate, particularly when they go on to trainings. There's actually more than just doing the training. You have to actually implement the training that you're given. And maybe it sounds a bit naive or even slightly crazy to suggest that some people may not realise that. And I'm, and I'm not having a go, by the way, because, as I say, I've had my own particular struggles around mindset. But I can see that sometimes we haven't really grasped that there is a next stage to it. The next stage of the process isn't just learning how to do it, but it's actually going out and doing it. And so if Alex has acquired 40 rent-to-rent serviced accommodation units in seven months, which is pretty good going, isn't it? He's taken massive action. Tony Robbins says that the key to success is massive action. It absolutely is. What is it you want to achieve? Work out what it is you want to achieve and then work out the steps to get there and then take massive action to make sure that you take those steps. As simple as that. So, Alex, I just wanted to pull your bit out because I just thought it was a fantastic story. There's a lot there to inspire and encourage. And there's a lot of lessons there to be learned. So well done, Alex. What else we got here? Well, this is a post that I saw, which has been put up on the Facebook group by Ryan Quinn. I met Ryan a few months back at uh, the masterclass when Ryan attended. And here's what Ryan said on Facebook. He said, a wise man, Dixie Walker. Yeah, Dixie is one of my co-masterclass trainers. Once told me, and apparently the last month at VIP, I should add also that Dixie is also a VIP mentor. The VIP is the 12-month mentoring course, which uh, program, which Progressive run. Ryan said, a wise man, Dixie Walker, once told me last month at VIP that the best deals are the quickest or the ones you have to be extremely patient over. Yeah, just to clarify that, I think what uh, I've heard Dixie saying is that there's two types of deals you want to do. You either want to do a quick deal or you want to do a slow deal. The reason being that if it's a quick deal, you've probably got somebody who's very motivated. Or a slow deal, again, the slower the deal, the more likely it is you're going to be able to get your own terms, and the more motivated whoever you're dealing with is probably going to become, the slower it is. So going back to Ryan, I have to embarrassingly admit that I was slightly sceptical. Yeah, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, by the way, Ryan. We all need a little bit of scepticism. I remember Rob Moore saying, 
me that we need to be slightly skeptical. It only becomes a problem when we become cynical. So skeptical is okay. That's a sort of a defense mechanism, isn't it? How could a property that has sat in your pipeline for months ever come back around and become a good deal? Well, that's exactly what's happened. I went to view this property in March, and when I went to if you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. an offer in, I was told that it had already gone. Five months later, and three buyers unable to complete, the phone call came. Now that the seller had become extremely motivated, I managed to negotiate a decent wee deal. I should say Ryan Scottish. There we go. This is a one-bedroom property just outside Glasgow. He then gives the figures. So he bought it for 28 and a half. The valuation was 35. Now it's slightly different in Scotland because in Scotland, the vendor has to produce a, a, a report before they sell the property, which includes a homes report. And it's, it's the opposite of the way in which we do it in England and Wales. So it's a little bit confusing. But basically, at the time when Ryan put his offer in, he would have known what the value had value had put on the property, 35. So he negotiated 28 and a half against a property which had been valued at 35. It cost him 500 quid to do the legals. It cost him five grand to do the refurb. But he knew that properties in the area were selling for around about 40 to 43 and a half thousand pounds. So he's able to do what we call the BRR model, which we teach at Masterclass. He was able to refinance after the refurb, pull most of his money back out. He wasn't able to get all of his money back out, but he had to leave 1,375 pounds in the deal. But because he was getting a rent of 425 pounds per calendar month, it meant that the return on the money which he left in the deal was 15%, which is not a bad return, is it? Don't forget, if, if, he's, if he's effectively spent £34,000 and he's left 1375 in, he's got 33 back out pretty much, isn't he? So that's the beauty of doing the BRR model. And sometimes I know when we're doing masterclass, that's one of the questions I often get is, well, would you do a deal if you had to leave money in? Well, if I was only leaving £1,000 in, yes, of course, why would I not? Because the amount of equity that he will have created, particularly when he's taken out his mortgage, 25% of the 40000 is £10,000 equity. So for £1,000, he's now got £425 a month income, plus he's got £10,000 worth of equity in the deal. So not a bad deal at all, and that's the beauty of doing the BRR. So Ryan goes on, he says, as well as adding these properties to my portfolio, I source the same deals in and around Glasgow for investors who may not be able to secure properties at such a low level. 
if anyone's interested, I'd love to have a chat. So find Ryan on Facebook if you're interested in doing some deals with Ryan up in Glasgow. So one of the things which really struck me about this is the power of pipelining. And it's something which we don't talk about very much around the progressive community. We do touch on it at Masterclass. But the power of pipelining is where you go and look at properties, and hopefully you're doing multiple viewings, you'll then make a note of the properties that you view. A spreadsheet is great for this because you can put in the address, you can put in notes on what the uh, condition of the property is like. Importantly, the date in which you view it, you can put in very importantly at the amount that the property is on at plus the amount that you offer and the date you make the offer and keep it on your spreadsheet. And you can use that as a reminder then so that going forward in the future, maybe if your offer is rejected, which let's face it, most of your offers are going to be rejected. Why do I say that? Because if most of your offers were accepted, first time at least, you're probably offering too much. So probably when you're offering at the right level, pitching at the right level, initially, most of your offers are going to be rejected. But if you keep a note on your spreadsheet of all the properties that you view, of all the ones that you make an offer on, and if you've got the details there, you could even paste into your spreadsheet maybe the Rightmove link or the Zoopla link or whatever, so that you can go back and refresh your memory on the property and then set up some kind of a system so that you can go back to the agents on a regular basis, maybe once every couple of weeks or once a month or whatever you feel is appropriate to ask about that particular property. I'd also advise doing this for any properties which you're interested in which happen to be under offer. Why do I say that? Because one in three properties that go under offer, the deal falls through and they come back onto the market. In fact, Ryan, this is a great example because three buyers fell through in five months. It happens all the time. So you have a process and a system so that you can go back and you can keep talking to the agent and just finding out what's happening. Now, sometimes when I talk to particularly new investors, they're a little bit nervous of doing this because they don't want to be a nuisance. But the reality is that if you are interested in a particular property and if it goes under offer, the agent knows that there's a one in three chance that that property is going to fall over, that the deal's going to fall over. So if they know that you're already interested, are they going to think you're a nuisance if you ring up regularly to find out what the latest position is with the sale? Of course not, because you're there, you will very soon become their reserve. Because if the deal does fall through, or should I say when the deal falls through in the case of one in three of the, the deals, all the agent has to do then is pick up the phone to you and say, that property which you're interested in has come back on the market. And they know that you can move quickly, potentially you're going to move quickly because you've been on the phone about it. So never, never be shy about pipelining and keeping in touch with the agents. It's, it's what it's all about, really. So that was the first thing which really struck me about Ryan's um, post on Facebook. The second thing is the advantages of JVing with somebody like Ryan, particularly somebody who's got time, who's got the time to source the deals. And clearly it looks like Ryan's doing this as a business. I'm not sure. I haven't spoken to him for a while, but it may be that he's doing this as a business. And also the advantage of JVing with somebody who can source the type of property which you may want to buy, but which you can't find in your local area. So, for example, one of the things which we have a good, lively debate about on Masterclass is about goldmine areas. And if you want to do, for example, a strategy like BRR buy to lets, there are some parts of the country where that's quite difficult to do because the values are too high and the yields are too low and the figures don't really work around that strategy. 
Does that mean you can't do it? No, it doesn't mean you can't do it. Obviously, you could go and buy properties in another part of the country. And by the way, I know that doesn't necessarily sort of go with the received wisdom, but it's a pragmatic view, isn't it? If it doesn't work where you are, then you've really got no choice. By the way, I should say that wherever you are, there will be strategies that do work, though. So just to be clear, there will always be something that you can do in any area, including your home area. But if there's a particular strategy which you want to do, but it doesn't work where you are, then of course you can do it somewhere else. But rather than doing it yourself, perhaps a better way is to find somebody like Ryan and to JV with them. So one of the things which I'll say on Masterclass when I'm asked, how do I find an area away from home in which to invest? I'd say, well, it's not necessarily always about finding the property as such. It might be more about finding the right JV partner who can source the property. So it may not be about finding the next nearest area which is closest, which works. It might be about finding a JV partner who might be even further away, but it's somebody who you trust. So knowing somebody like Ryan can be very, very useful. And then, of course, the last thing which I think is really impactful about Ryan's post is the advice that Dixie gave. And I know that Dixie is a wise property investor. If you know Dixie, you'll know that he is. And I fully agree that the two types of properties that you're looking for are the ones which you can buy really quickly because the vendor is highly motivated, or be prepared to sit on your hands and wait. And this is one of the ways in which Mark Homer, I know, particularly has bought many, many great deals for Progressive because Mark is very, very patient as well. And the way it would work is probably just watching and waiting, maybe making an offer, having the offer rejected, and then just waiting, maybe from time to time reminding the agent that the offer is still on the table and waiting for if the property doesn't sell. And of course, you're not going to buy every property this way because some properties may sell, you may not get them. But the ones which don't sell within a reasonable period of time, the vendor is probably, depending upon their circumstances, going to become more and more motivated. So the longer you wait, the more chance there is that you're going to get your terms or even better terms. The properties you probably don't want to buy are the sort of the middling properties, which are neither quick nor slow. And there's, there's obviously a sort of a bit of a balance there, and it's going to be different for all of us, and it's all going to depend upon what we're trying to achieve, blah, blah, blah. But I think you get the idea. So I thought that was a great tip. So thanks, Dixie. And thank you, Ryan, for sharing all of that. Right, the third post I'm looking at now is from Dan Cheatham. And Dan is in Stoke-on-Trent. And Dan starts off by saying, £25,000 plus profit from a single flip. My recent buy, refurb and sell experience. I offered on a property about a month ago on the outskirts of Stoke-on-Trent. The offer that went in was well under the asking price. However, we justified it to the estate agent and he gladly put it forward. After some negotiation, our offer got accepted. Cue the initial celebrations. A day later, the agent called and told us the buyer was going to pull out as they wanted a higher offer. We increased it as it still worked for us and offered to pay their legal fees, but we were still way under and they wouldn't change their mind. We left the deal and I watched it online. Four weeks had passed. They had dropped the asking price by 10000 and still no sale. I called the agent and reminded him of our offer and asked him to call the vendor and remind them also. No call back. We're approaching six, seven weeks now since our initial offer and the agent called back asking if the funds were still available. Some further negotiation, another 2000 discount and the deal has been agreed. So here are Dan's figures. Purchase price, £110,000. Refurb, 
£26,500. Total upfront investment, £141,000. Forecast sale price, £170,000. Profit, £26,500. So he's going to have to put up £141,000. He's going to make £26,500. Not a bad return. I'll either be sourcing this project onto one of our clients on our database or joint venturing with a partner. Again, a great reminder to follow up on offers and to keep your eye on properties that are sticking online. Well, there's so many great points there, aren't there? Going back to the, the previous post, which, which Ryan made, this is actually another example of the power of waiting and pipelining. So he made an offer and the offer was accepted, but the very next day, the vendor got cold feet, they got seller's remorse, and they decided to pull out. How frustrating. And does that happen in property? Well, yes, of course, it does happen in property. But Dan did the wise thing. He left his offer on the table, presumably, and he watched. Four weeks went by. He did the Dixie thing. He was prepared to wait. He didn't try and, didn't try and make something happen. He just said, okay, fair enough. This will take its time. Four weeks went by. He noticed that they dropped the asking price. He had to call the agent to remind him that the offer was still on the table. By the way, is that ever going to happen in property? Well, of course it is. Even if you're dealing with the very best estate agent in the world, is there a chance they may forget your offer? Of course. So this is, what again, the power of pipelining, so that you can then remind them, make a diary note to remind them that in two weeks' time that your offer is still on the table. Still nothing. The agent didn't even call back. Does that happen? Well, of course it does. It's obviously happened to Dan, so of course it does. But would it happen to us? Probably. Just have to take a deep breath. Bite your lip, all just part of being in property. Six or seven weeks later, so add that onto the four weeks we're now 10 to 11 weeks since the offer was accepted and then rejected, suddenly now the vendor is motivated. So what happens? Well, some further negotiation, another 2,000 discount, and the deal was agreed at £110,000. Brilliant. Brilliant way of doing it. Shows the power of waiting, shows the power of pipelining. Now, in this particular instance, Dan's buying the property because he wants to do a flip. And I love flips. I sort of jokingly say when I'm running the masterclass trading that I think flips should be compulsory. And if you're thinking about your 70, 20, 10, your three different strategies, I always suggest that you consider putting flips in as one of those strategies. Why? Well, because they work. And if you're wondering what a flip is, by the way, it's basically buying a property cheap and selling it on at a profit. And that could be buying a property and just selling it on as it is. Or it could be buying a property and doing a refurb or adding some value and then selling it on. All of those ways are good and all of those, those ways work. Sometimes people are surprised when I say that you can flip properties without having to do any work to them. At the end of the day, it all depends upon what price you pay for the property, of course. And, and the price you pay is very often going to be a direct result or a direct consequence of how motivated the vendor is. So when you understand a vendor's motivation, it can be easier to find properties like this which you can then sell on at a profit. So it doesn't necessarily follow that you have to do work. I've bought properties where I've flipped them on instantly without doing any work at all. That's been a good strategy. Why would we want to be thinking about having a flip as one of our 70, 20, 10? Well, because if you're doing a strategy like, for example, buy, buy to lets, BRR buy to lets, you're going to be going out and viewing multiple properties and not all of those properties are going to be suitable for BRR buy to lets, the figures may not stack. But possibly and probably a percentage, a proportion of those properties which don't work for buy to let would work as a flip. 
And if you go looking at a property with a, a number of strategies in mind, you'll give yourself more options. And I do definitely recommend that one of those options should be thinking about flips. One of the great things about flips is if you can't afford to buy the property, and Dan hasn't said how he's buying it, he might be using his own funds, he might be using a JV partner's funds. But assuming, for example, you have no money of your own, and perhaps you don't even have a JV partner who can finance it for you, one of the things you can do with a property which would work as a flip is to package it up as a, a deal to be packaged, a deal packaging. You could become like a, a property sourcer and you could sell that on. So you could get the deal arranged, agree it with the agent, then sell the deal on for a fee to somebody else who has got the funds and then they could take it off your hands. So that could work as well. So I thought that was really, really good. Now, I'm a little bit trepidatious about this next one because it's from Alex Sepitwalski. And I know Alex really well. I've been on the Cayman retreat with Alex and Alex has come to ESR and done the speaker training with me. But I know I've got his name wrong. Alex, forgive me. I love you, man. Alex. I'm just going to call you Alex. And Alex left a post which said, six-month rule. What six-month rule, says Kent Reliance? With bank lending getting easier, does it mean a crash isn't a million miles away? So let's have a look at this. Two parts to this question. Six-month rule. Well, if you're wondering what the six-month rule is, very, very quickly, a number of years ago, after the, the recession, after the credit crunch, uh, council of mortgage lenders suggest to lenders that rather than financing properties instantly or refinancing properties instantly, that there was a six-month waiting period, which meant if you bought a property and bought it with a mortgage, for example, and then you wanted to refinance six months later, which is what we'd probably want to do if we're following the BRR buy-to-let model, you'd have to wait six months before you could refinance. Simple as that. Now, has every bank actually adhered to that? Well, no. It's, we, we call it the six-month rule, but it's not actually a rule. It was a guideline, and some banks use it, and some banks don't, and some banks use it as sort of a compromise, and you might get your money a little bit quicker. They might want four months. But as a general rule, in buy-to-let particularly, if you buy a property, you're probably going to have to wait six months before you refinance it. This is the interesting thing. Kent Reliance, who are a pretty mainstream buy-to-let lender, have just come out with this uh, idea of theirs that they're not actually going to have the six-month rule, which means it's going to be much quicker to be able to refinance and get your money back out. The thing which I find very interesting about that is that when one bank changes, particularly a big household name like Kent Reliance, quite often the others will follow suit. In fact, just to sort of skip ahead, another post on Facebook, which I saw around about the same time, from Darren Williams. Thank you, Darren. It says, the mortgage works are rolling out limited company buy-to-let. This was back in June, end of June. Mortgage works are rolling out limited company buy-to-let. Why is that significant? Well, because the Mortgage Works are one of the biggest, if not the biggest, buy-to-let lender in the UK. Um, arguably, maybe it's Birmingham Midshires, but you know, they're there or thereabouts. And the Mortgage Works have been trialling for a while now through selected brokers, buy-to-let products aimed at limited companies. Now, why is that interesting? Well, because since the tax changes, since Section 24, since George Osborne decided that going forward, we're no longer able to offset our mortgage interest against rent when calculating income tax. A lot of investors have been investing their properties straight, buying their properties straight into a buy-to-let. A lot of investors have been buying their properties into limited companies. Why? 
because a limited company can still offset at the time of recording this podcast, and it may change in a future budget, can still offset the rent, well, the mortgage interest against the rent when calculating corporation tax. Again, the significance is if a big lender like the Mortgage Works decides that they're going to enter the limited company market in a big way, which they are now, in other words, they've done their trial period, they've decided that it works. By the way, I'm a little bit surprised that they needed to trial it because three or four years ago, the Mortgage Works, or maybe five or six or ten years ago, but certainly in the not-too-distant past, the Mortgage Works were actually doing limited company buy-to-let mortgages anyway. I know because I've got some. Then they stopped doing them. Then they decided to trial it again. And now they've decided that they will do it again. So this is going to have an impact on the market. Why? Because the likes of Birmingham Midshires are going to look at this and think, well, actually, our competitors are stealing a march on us. We're probably going to have to come into the limited company market as well. Now, if you're wondering, there are quite a few lenders who will do limited company buy-to-let mortgages anyway. It's not like if you want to buy through a limited company, you're going to be short of lenders. There's plenty. But obviously, the more there are, the better the terms, the more competition there'll be, the better rates we're going to get. So just linking Darren's Facebook post to Alex's, you can see that things are changing, and things are always changing in the buy-to-let lending market. But in this instance, there's two very positive things. Limited company buy-to-let mortgages, easier to get. And Kent Reliance saying, do you know what? We're a bit fed up with the six-month rule. Let's just get on with it. And I have to say that as an investor, I like that approach a lot. I mean, I would, wouldn't I? But, you know, it's very pragmatic because when you have added value to a property, say like doing a refurb or if you've extended it or whatever you've done to it, it can, it's frustrating when you have to then wait the, six, the whole six months to be able to refinance because you know that you've added the value. It can be self-evident that you've added the value, but you've got to go through this rigmarole of waiting. Now it seems that Kent Reliance is saying, look, if the value has been added, we'll take that into account. So that's pretty cool. So the second part of Alex's Facebook post was, with bank lending getting easier, does that mean a crash isn't a million miles away? And that's the question we're always going to be asking ourselves, isn't it? Now, one thing which I suppose I've learned over the last 35 years or so in property is that obviously the market is cyclical. It didn't take much to learn that. We all know that. There's boom and bust, despite what Gordon Brown said he was going to, going to attempt to do. You know, 15 years ago, he said he's going to get rid of the boom and bust cycle. Well, he didn't, and we're still there. So is there going to be another property crash? Well, yes, of course there is. At some point, there's bound to be another property crash. So it's not a, is there going to be a crash, is the question. It's when it's going to be, is the, the, the big question, which is what Alex is basically asking. And if you could see Alex's post, you'll see that he's added a couple of graphics, which basically show the investment clock and, you know, the, the way in which the economy works and, and it, the graphics illustrate the cyclical nature of the economy. The thing about property is that it's so easy to see with hindsight the, the cyclical nature of property. If you've ever done a, a property secrets, beginner's property secrets day with Progressive, you'll have seen the, the, the chart which... We've extrapolated from the nationwide figures, which show the peaks and troughs of what's happened in, in the property market over the last sort of, 30 or 40 years. I don't ever see that changing. And the big question at the moment is, are we following the normal pattern? Because researchers have looked at this and they've determined that there is what we could call an 18-year cycle. Now, not um, 
I don't mind saying this, but if you want to know more about this, if you go onto the property podcast, nothing to do with Progressive, by the way. So a shout out for Rob and Rob, not Rob Moore, but Rob and Rob from the property podcast. Very interesting podcast. Learn a lot of stuff with them as well. So shout out to them. But they have been talking about the 18-year property cycle for quite a while now. There's a couple of really good episodes on their podcast all about this. And if we were following the normal pattern, and if you sort of trace it through and look at what's been happening, at the moment, we would be expecting to see what they call a mid-cycle downturn. And of course, in London, we've kind of seen that. And London market has flattened, stagnated, and in some areas dropped. But if the normal cycle is going to be followed, then we're probably looking at a few more years of boom. And the boom usually comes after the mid-market wobble. And so roughly speaking, and by the way, this is just me sort of guessing. I haven't got a crystal ball. I really don't know. Nobody's told me this. Nobody's come back from the future to tell me, unfortunately. But you'd guess that the boom time, if you follow the old pattern, would be sort of from 2020 through to about 2025. And then you'd expect the crash around about 2025. Of course, is life that simple? Well, no, not really, because there's so much stuff which can happen. As I record this, it seems like we're getting nowhere with Brexit, for example, which is going to have a big impact. Despite what we're told, it is going to have an impact. And in some ways, it's no doubt going to be positive, And in other ways, no doubt it's going to be negative. But we don't know what the impact is going to be. Because of that, there's a whole lot of stuff happening in politics, which could have an enormous impact. We could, at the time of recording, I don't know. I mean, by the time you listen to this and it's published, we could have a new prime minister. I don't know. We could certainly have a new government by this time next year. Is that government going to be as sympathetic towards property investors as the current government? And let's face it, the current government aren't terribly sympathetic. Well, the received wisdom is that another government, and I'm not going to get all political, but this is just how it is. I'm not trying to offend anybody, but let's get real. But another government of another colour could be even less sympathetic to investors and probably will be much less sympathetic to investors and business and all that other stuff which perhaps is part of the cycle and which makes the cycle look the way that it does. So a lot could change. So Alex, it's a great question. The answer is we don't know, do we? But if the old patterns are followed, probably we're going to see a bit of a downturn, which we've started seeing in London at the moment. That will last a year, 18 months maybe, and then maybe around about 2020, things will pick up for five years and then all go horribly wrong again in 2025. By the way, if we know that it's all going to go horribly wrong again, it kind of means that it's not going horribly wrong, because at least if we're forearmed, we're forewarned, aren't we? Or is it the other way around? But you know what I mean. So which means that we can plan and we can get ourselves ready. And a downturn can be one of the best times to buy. Well, it probably is one of the, it, the best time to buy property, because there are so many properties. There's a, a, a lack of buyers and there's an abundance of sellers. And so it's relatively easy and straightforward to buy properties on great terms. It's also relatively easy to do some of the more creative uh, strategies like using lease options and instalment contracts and assisted sales and things like that, which are, are really fun and which work really well, but which can work much better in a downturn. So a downturn for us as property investors isn't necessarily negative. It can be a bit galling if you've just been accumulating a portfolio and you suddenly realise that 20% of the value of your portfolio is gone. But, you know, there's a plus side as well. As Rob Moore always says, there's always upsides and downsides and pluses and negatives and all this kind of stuff. And it's absolutely true. 
So anyway, that's enough for this podcast, I think. I hope you've enjoyed that. It's been really good seeing your comments on the Facebook group. Do go on the Facebook group. Leave some comments if you want to have a bit of a chat with me. Then tag me in. And uh, if I get the time and if I see it, I'll come and have a chat with you. In the meantime, if you want to know more about me, Peter, Peter Jones, then come to my website, which is www.thepropertyteacher.co.uk, all one word, thepropertyteacher.co.uk, where you can find some resources. You've got my blog there. Loads of articles I've written about property. There's some free resources. There's some paid-for resources, all sorts of good stuff. But until next time, here's to successful property investing.